Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, as I'd like us to read together before we uh, open the passage of the scriptures that we're going to be studying today. I'd like us to read a passage that is going to dovetail with the things that are going on um, in the events surrounding the ministry of the gospel going to the Corinthians. In Philippians, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 10, just to kind of give you a, a heads up on this, this is a passage that explains what was going on at the church at Philippi, which was in Macedonia. And it's important to understand that because there's going to be a reference to the Macedonians in uh, the scriptures that we look at in just a short time. And this tells us what they did and to whom these gifts were sent and the purpose for which they were sent. So that will give you a little bit of a frame of reference as we read this. In Philippians, the fourth chapter, I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again to my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Very, very important passage to help us understand some of the things we're going to be talking about in just a moment. But before we do, I'd like us to return to the Lord in prayer. Some of you are probably aware that our seniors and our chaperones are on their trip, on their way home right now. I believe they're flying back from France and uh, if I'm not mistaken, they are probably in the air somewhere right now. They'd, they'd be in the air, wouldn't they? Yeah. And uh, then they'll be back this afternoon, and uh, Lord willing. And let's pray that the Lord will uh, perhaps not only grant them safety, but use all these events as a means of ministering spiritually to the lives of these kids and the chaperones as well. So let's go to the Lord. Father, what a privilege it is to boldly come before your throne. We do that solely because of our standing in Christ. And we come clothed in his righteousness and that righteousness alone. We come first to praise you and to thank you for who you are and for what you do. 
We praise you because of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice. And because he, as the Holy One, could take our sin upon himself and die in our place. Worthy is the Lamb. Father, we thank you as well for the applications of the benefits of what Christ accomplished at the cross of Calvary as they are appropriated through faith and granted to us by your grace. And Father, it is only because of your grace that we are here today. It is your grace that has preserved us. It is your grace that has given us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And for that, we thank you. Father, with this need that we come before you right now to lay at your feet, we think of our seniors and the chaperones traveling with them. We would pray for their safety. Father, that would be our desire. We pray that they would be able to return home safely without any difficulties. But more importantly, Father, we pray that whatever spiritual needs were represented in that student body or even within our our faculty, that you would supply those needs even as a, a result of the interaction that they've had over these past days. Father, we thank you for the experiences that they've enjoyed. And we thank you, Lord, for what you will do through their lives as by your grace they return to us. I thank you for this body of believers that is gathering together today. Father, as some will be departing to return to the north, we pray for their safety. We pray that over the summer months, their spiritual needs would be supplied, that they would continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And Father, if it would please you that they would return to us safely again next year. And for those of us who dwell here around the year, we pray, Lord, that we would each day be drawn closer to you and we might have a better understanding of who you are and what you are doing for us day by day. We thank you that your Holy Spirit now can take your word and appropriate it to our lives and to teach us. We pray that he would do that for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Now I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. And the first verse of this passage really lays for us a direction that we're going to go as we study the continuing ministry that God called the Apostle Paul to perform in essentially helping establish the early church as it began to spread from Jerusalem through Judea into Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in that first verse, we simply read this. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Now, if you recall, as Paul was traveling around in what would be Greece, uh, he is leaving from Athens, having gone through some difficulty there and yet having some fruit there as well. And he makes his way to the city of Corinth. If you locate Corinth on a map, you'll see that it is just about 30 miles east of Athens. It was uh, a city that had been established a number of centuries before. I think it was around the 8th century before Christ that, that this city had been established. It didn't really reach its peak as a city until about the 5th or 6th century before Christ. And then it went through a whole series of different difficulties. And, and I'm not sure that they're all that important for us to understand. So let me just briefly say, Philip II of Macedon uh, conquered the city um, essentially turned it into a Macedonian-type city. And then the Romans 
defeated him. And about 40 or 50 years after the Romans had taken the city over, there was a revolt in the city against Rome. And so one of the Roman legions came, fought against the city, and basically destroyed it. And then until about 40 years before the coming of Christ, the city was once again reestablished, and it grew like crazy. By the time the Apostle Paul got there, there were probably about 200,000 people that made up the city, and it was a center of uh, commerce and trade. It had become very important in the, uh, the culture in this part of the world. It had become very important in the economy of this part of the world. It was a city that was known specifically, however, for its immorality. If you said to someone, you have been Corinthianized, I, would you say that? I don't know. But they knew what that meant. You're a Corinthian. It meant that you are an immoral person. And part of that is because of the false forms of worship that had been set up. There were a variety of different gods that were worshipped in that first century there in the city of Corinth. But one was the goddess Aphrodite. And part of the process of the worship experience was that there were a thousand uh, ladies of the temple who would give themselves uh, for the purpose of worship. And that is really a reflection of the moral fiber of this entire city. So it had a, a, a variegated background. It had uh, a great deal of wealth. It had this immoral dimension to it. And now here comes the Apostle Paul. And he left Athens, and now he's made his way 30 miles to the east, and he arrives at the city of Corinth. And now the following verses tell us how things began to unfold. Follow along, please, as I read, starting in verse 2. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, you remember that? Okay, you remember how we read in Philippians? We're told that there was something going on up in Philippi that now Silas and Timothy are bringing to the benefit of the Apostle Paul as far as gifts. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice or Titius Justice, one who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. As Paul is continuing his journeys, and, and we, we're all familiar with these different missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul took, he was doing what the Lord had commanded prior to the Lord's ascension into heaven. 
And it was to carry the gospel to the whole world. And now as Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, and there were others, Peter is continuing the ministry, and Barnabas and John Mark, and a whole variety of other believers are carrying the message of the gospel. This gospel is now beginning to spread through the known world. And as it's spreading, it's making an impact. And it is doing some incredible things. And what is happening is people's lives are starting to get changed. And when we come to Acts chapter 18, we begin to understand that any time Christ enters the life of an individual, things change. We saw how things would change in a general sense within the city of Jerusalem. We saw how things would change in the lives of people who were the early converts. And now we're seeing this moving through the continent, over into Greece, from Athens, now into Corinth. And you see these people's lives being impacted. And it leaves us with a question. What should change? What are the things that should be different in the way we live, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, as many here in Corinth did. And we're not left wondering about that too long. The first thing that changes is your head. You begin to think very, very differently. The thought processes that used to be part of your regular routine of the day, the things that would, would gravitate into your mind and the things upon which you would dwell, are now beginning to move. In some cases, the change is dramatic and it's significant. In other cases, there is the process of thinking being changed. And we begin to see that back in these early verses. Do you remember people that we were just introduced to here? Aquila and Priscilla? They become pretty important for us to understand how the mind, how the head begins to change. If you look there in verse 2, Paul, as he came to Athens, found a certain Jew named Aquila. He had recently come from Italy, where Claudius had kicked the people out of Rome, and or the Jews out of Rome, and then... He came to these people who had gathered there in Corinth. And their minds begin to change. We're left wondering what it was that brought Aquila and Priscilla to Christ. And I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you all the circumstances that surround that. But I can't. I I don't know what the circumstances were. But here's something I do know. Their lives changed dramatically, and it began with their heads. You say, well, now, how how do you get that out of the portion that, that we've read to this point? Well, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, and we'll see this in verses that follow, but I don't want to treat those verses specifically today. But what happened was, when Paul came to Athens, there was... A great deal of resistance. As we just read, the the Jews began to blaspheme when he was telling them about Christ. But the Lord came to him and said, I want you to stay here for a while. And what happened in that period of time? We're told specifically that Paul remained there in the city of Corinth for a year and a half. Now here we are introduced to Aquila and Priscilla in verse 2 of chapter 18. 
But I want you to look at a change that has taken place in their life that happens very soon after this. They've not only been under the sound of the teaching of God's word as the Apostle Paul had given it, but they also had traveled with him as he began his move back to Antioch. That's where he's heading back to at the end of this missionary journey. As they go with him, they continue to learn, and they come across a guy by the name of Apollos. In that same 18th chapter, just drop down and look with me, if you will, please, at verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. Remember? Will and Priscilla traveled with Paul after they left Corinth. They went to Ephesus, and they actually became very deeply involved in the church at Ephesus. And it says, The man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Well, what happened to this fella? He had come to know Christ as his Savior. And he was teaching accurately things that to his point in time could be known by a follower of Christ. But it was very limited. He would be able to draw upon the prophecies of the Old Testament related to the coming of the Messiah. He would be able to identify how in one case the Messiah would be identified as the ruling reigning king but also be identified as the suffering dying servant and now this has come together in his mind and he's able to identify these things but he's not really clear on everything that's going on so what happens two people whose heads were changed got a hold of you And they started teaching him the truth. Look at what it says in the next verse. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What had changed in Aquila and Priscilla? Their head had changed because they had determined to grow in Christ. They had determined to learn the truths about the one in whom they were trusting for their forgiveness and for their eternal life. They exposed themselves to the teaching concerning Christ as they interacted with Paul for that year and a half in Corinth. They had hooked their wagon, as it were, to Paul as he traveled over to Ephesus Undoubtedly, they studied and they had given themselves to appropriate into their lives the truths concerning the person of Christ. And when a person was preaching, going to the synagogue, telling others about Christ, they straightened out his understanding. A year and a half, and they were ready to teach others a year and a half, and they had committed themselves to grow to the point where they could hear the word, know it is not being completely spoken as it should, and training another person to carry that word and to communicate it accurately. 
Does that hit you at all? A year and a half, and they were ready to teach. When Christ comes into your life, your head changes. But it doesn't change the way it ought unless you make some of the similar commitments that Aquila and Priscilla made. We are going to study the Word. We are going to learn the Word. We are going to appropriate into our lives the Word of God so that we can teach others. Oh, we hire a pastor to do that. We hire a youth pastor to do that. Well, yeah, we better. But you should too. Quill and Priscilla never became pastors. They were part of the congregation. And they taught the Word of God more clearly and more completely. What has changed? Their heads. They not only had laid hold of the Word, but they were willing to sacrifice their lives for this. You say, how in the world do you know that? Well, as we go down further in in Scripture and we, we look at other passages, we're led to a passage in Romans chapter 16, and you can just jot this down in your notes. But Paul, when he is writing to the Romans, he ends his letter to them with a a, a rather lengthy, um, I I guess you could call it, um, what what do you call it at the end of the letter? Post, not not a postscript, just... And and the crowd began to murmur. (laughs) The salutation is dear so-and-so, right? Isn't there, a, isn't there a technical word for that? No, at the end. Forget it. I can't come up with it. You are all hitting. It's the closing. It's the end. It's conclusion. It's all of that. And he begins to name all these people and what they mean to him. And guess who enters the picture there? Aquila and Priscilla. And listen to what he says about them. In verse uh, verse uh, 3 of Romans 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. Who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. These were special people. And yet I believe they should have been the norm. Their heads got changed. They studied. They appropriated the truths. And they were so gripped by those truths that they offered their lives for the purpose of the spread of the gospel. I heard somebody say one time, Yeah, I know you'd be willing to die for Christ, but are you willing to live for Him? And that might be a better test. And then there's something else about them, and I just want to mention this briefly, and that is they they opened up everything they had for the glory of Christ. They understood something. Now, their home is where people met. Listen to what it says in the fifth verse of that 16th chapter of Romans. I didn't read the fifth, but the fifth verse continuing on about Aquila and Priscilla. 
Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apennitus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. These people not only studied and understood the word, but they were willing to lay their lives down and they proved how committed they were to Christ by saying, you know what, whatever the Lord needs, it's his. You need our house? It's yours. Come and use it. You got to ask yourself, where's my head? Oh yeah, I know Jesus is my savior. Well, where's your head? Well, pastor, you know, people don't have to really work that hard. It's it's much easier for us just to, you know, just to come and we'll sing these great songs and we'll enjoy the fellowship together. But boy, to sit down and, and labor over the word, to know Christ and to appropriate him in every part of our lives and then to be willing to not only die for him, but to live for him and then to say, this is all yours. Do with it what you want. I don't know that I want to go that deep. Then you you are falling short. I obviously I could use stronger, but you're falling short of what the Lord wants. Christ changes our heads. I want you to look at another change that occurs. He changes our hands. And it it emerges here in chapter 3 when Aquila and Priscilla, or pardon me, chapter chapter 18, verse 3. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. So Aquila and Priscilla had been tent makers, and that's how they earned their living. And the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. And by the way, when we think of a tent maker, this is a rather broad explanation of the the craft that was carried out it wasn't just tents but it would be work with the leather goods and things of that nature so it was it was a pretty broad area of production that they were involved in and they supported themselves this way and they worked not for selfish purposes do you understand that there are really only two ways you can work It is either going to be a selfish way that is designed to accumulate more for myself so I can enjoy more of the things this world has to offer, or perhaps it's not so much that I want to accumulate things, but I would really kind of like to be known. I'd like my name to appear on that uh, donor's wall where it talks about the gold donors and the silver donors and the bronze donors and the wood, hay, and stubble donors. I just thought about that. And there's no wood, hay, and stubble donors. But I'd like to see my name up there. And so I, I, I will use this for pride. Or maybe it's just that I can salve my conscience if I accumulate things from my labors and then just give them to philanthropic works. 
Oh, yeah, I'll give some to the church and I'll give some to the Haitian needs and I'll give some to the Japanese. And, and oh, boy, I feel really good. I know God is really happy with me now because I, I gave those things. I, you know what? This just hit me. I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. You, you know, sometimes... Have you ever opened up your heart to people and just said, look, I'm a little embarrassed by this, but this is something that went on in my heart. Do you want to hear it? Of course you do. It's juicy. I was of the opinion when I graduated from college that um, if I could make a lot of money, I could send a missionary to the foreign field. And I'm not so sure that my motives were all that good. It was more the idea, well, I'm going into an area of industry where the money is big. And I became a sales rep. And in my mind, I'm saying, you know, when I get to this level, I'll be able to send a missionary. You know, that that just makes me feel really good. And the Lord slapped me across the face and said, you're not sending anybody. You're going to go. And on a Wednesday night after prayer meeting, I met with my pastor and literally broke down and said, Lord, that is past. What do you want? I'm I'm not happy about that. I'm I'm not proud that I went through a time where I thought that was the goal that God had for me. And I'd have felt really good about doing that. And the Lord said, no. I want you. You know what the Lord wants from every one of us? Not that every one of us is going to go into an occupational ministry, but He does want us to come to the place where we understand that the labor in which we are involved is for the glory of Jesus Christ. It is not to amass for ourselves. It is to fulfill the purpose for which God called you to labor and to work. And what is that purpose? Well, now, some of you might say, well, I know, here he goes. It's going to be to give big offerings to the church and to to give special gifts to the school and all of that. No, no, no. Your first responsibility is to provide for your needs and the needs of your family. That is not a selfish thing. That is what God designed. And he said, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So what's the purpose? You work because God has placed you here to be a good testimony by the way you provide for yourself and for your family. Believe me, people watch how you do that. And if you fail to do it, people know it. It's a terrible testimony when people who have the capability to labor and work don't. And that is dishonoring to the Lord. These people labored with their hands to provide their own needs. Paul will describe that, how they supplied their own needs, sewing and and curing and stretching and working very hard. And then to give to the needs of others. There are people who are going through difficult times. May I make an appeal to you all? We need you to help us with our benevolence. We have some people in our church family 
that are in desperate need financially. You probably won't hear about it because they're not complainers. But we know about it. And we would love to step in and say, we as a church are coming to your aid because we have the capability to do that because we work to help others. I hope you can help us. And then finally, you work so you can do the work of Christ. You labor in such a way that you are free to serve the Lord. You know what? This to me is is really interesting. People will get down to a Saturday, which there's going to be a request for for people of the church to get together to help out with a a task on Saturday. And they'll say something like this, Man alive, I work so hard. I work such long hours. And I am so committed to my work that I just, I I can't do anything. I, I don't have time to help out then something's wrong with your concept of work. Because you don't work for yourself. You work for the glory of Christ. That's what Aquila and Priscilla learned from the Apostle Paul. We could take more time on that. I'm not going to. So there are a couple things that we learned already that are changed. Our heads and our hands. But I want you to look down there in verse 5 and see the next. Our purse gets changed. In verse 5, here we go with that passage that we read earlier out of the book of Philippians. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with the purse? Listen to what Paul wrote later to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 9. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. In other words, Paul said this, the ministry that I offered to you in Corinth was possible because the brothers in Macedonia who were going through very, very difficult times, said, our purse belongs to the Lord. And where there is a need, we're going to give to Him. An offering was taken at Philippi. And that offering was delivered to two men who came down to Corinth from Macedonia bringing a gift that supplied the needs of the Apostle Paul so he could give the work his attention, the work of spreading the gospel. And, and what, what do we see about that? That gift was because there was genuine concern for the work of Christ. If you go back, and, and you can look this up yourself, in Philippians chapter 1, verse, or pardon me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, it is clearly stated that these believers at Philippi were very concerned about what the Apostle Paul was able to do in Corinth. It was a reflection of the need that existed. When you read verse 16, Paul made it very clear that there was a need that was there. There was a purpose for which those gifts were given. 
And that purpose was clearly stated. It was so the Apostle Paul could spread the gospel. Those gifts were given to people who were trustworthy and could be trusted with carrying these finances and using them and seeing to it that they were delivered and used in the proper way. And finally, it all brought glory to God. The giving all brought glory to Him. Sometimes, uh, as a pastor, I really back away from talking about giving because so many pastors have the reputation of capitalizing on the issues of giving. And those of you who are part of our church family, you know that that is something we do not talk about a whole lot. And that's probably a flaw within me because I get real self-conscious about saying, folks, there are needs that exist and we need you to do what the Lord would have you do financially. Um, I can't avoid it because it's here. The gift came from the believers in Macedonia. And folks, if the work of the Lord is going to continue, we need to remain faithful in our giving. I would ask you to constantly evaluate what you provide for our missionaries. We have the Faith Promise Ministry, and quite frankly, we're hearing from missionary after missionary who are saying, please pray for us. Our support is being dropped by so many churches, or our support is being lowered by so many churches. If you can do anything to help increase our support, then we're asking you to become involved. All I would say is this, wouldn't it be a blessing if we just really stepped up to the plate and said, you know, we made a promise for so much to give to missions, but there is such a need today that this is what we're going to give. And you know what's neat about our missions committee? They're trustworthy. You'll see that it gets to where it belongs. And for the support of the work here as well. We need generosity. But I, I have to say this. You all have been generous. Our, our church, quite frankly, through a time of very difficult financial circumstances, is really well cared for. And um, I don't get many opportunities to tell you that, but I do want you to know you have demonstrated your faithfulness in giving. And um, that's good. Laying up treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. Well, I, I want to give you the final thing that changes, and that is all of our possessions, not just our purse, but everything we own. Take a look at what it says in verses 7 and 8. After Paul departed from the uh, synagogue, after the people there had blasphemed and so forth, it says in verse 7, And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, or Titius Justice, or as you might find in your notes, T.J., one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. I want you to look at the, the, the change that took place in TJ's life. Here, he hears the gospel. He responds. He accepts Christ. His house is right next door to the synagogue. It is the perfect location. 
And Paul comes and Paul dwells there and begins to explain the word of God. And guess what happens? The head of the synagogue, a Jew, accepts Christ. And then others, other Jews, other Gentiles start to hear about Christ. And before you know it, guess what? A whole church develops. And a body of believers who had a lot of problems. If you know anything about Corinth. There, listen, if you came from a city like Corinth, let's say Miami, would there be problems with people who have just been saved? I mean, a lot of these people probably went down to the temple of Aphrodite and got involved down there. And these people perhaps had been involved in greed because of the great commerce that was going on in this city. And maybe these were people who were, were violent by nature because the past of this city had been very violent. And now you've got to come and, and present the gospel and show that this is not just a fire escape, but it is a whole new way of life when we trust Christ. And so there were problems. But apart from that, there was a church. And there's where the gospel began to spread. And throughout this entire region, people came to know Christ as their Savior. Why? Because a guy by the name of Titius Justus used what he had, not just what he could give, but everything that was still within his possession. He, he had this crucially located house that people could use for the glory of Christ. He freely opened it and he effectively saw that it was, or I should say it was used very effectively. Anyway, I tell you all of those things to say this. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, things change. You get a new head. (laughs) Some of you would say, I wish... You know what I'm saying. Your hands start moving for different reasons. Your purse becomes the Lord's. And all that you possess is His. Do with it as you will. Let me ask you, have you made those changes? Has that that been a reflection of your life? Maybe you would say, well, I don't agree with much of anything that you said today. Maybe most of all you don't agree with the fact that the only way of forgiveness and eternal life is found through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's no good work that you can do that will merit God's favor. There is no religious exercise in which you can become involved that will cause God to say, I'll accept you. Our sins have separated us from our God. And no matter what good thing you and I might do, none of that is appropriate or sufficient to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God. And so what hope do we have? And the hope is all wrapped up at the cross. Christ took your sin and mine. And as the infinite God-man paid the penalty that we should pay 
which is death. Not just physical death. Death is separation. Physical death is separation of the soul and spirit from the body. And eternal death is separation of the soul and spirit from the presence of God into a place called hell that ultimately will be cast into the lake of fire where the torment and the smoke of the torment of those cast there will ascend forever. And then on the other side there is Christ who says, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so when we come to Christ, we find forgiveness and we find life. And then we find changes. I told you that uh, the city of Corinth had a, had a problem. You want to hear about one of the problems? One of them is recorded for us pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians. Uh, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. See, some of you put your Bibles away. I heard those zippers going on those Bible cases. What, do you think I'm deaf up here? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. On my Bible, it's page 1009. (laughs) Everybody's got different pagination. Look at what, what the Bible says in verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, see, Paul's addressing one of the problems. I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, you've got your own little clique that you hang with. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, and and you remember the the background of this, there would be a a love feast first, and then there would be the breaking of the bread and the uh, sharing of the cup as a reminder of what Christ did. And so when they come together to have their feast, here's the way they did it. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. See, what Paul was doing was he was straightening out this problem at the city of Corinth. He said, for those of you who know Christ as Savior, when you come together, you watch how you behave. And you be sure to do what Christ said we're supposed to do. And as we go on, and I didn't read the remainder of those verses, but, but you feel free to do that. Read it right to the end of the chapter, and it says that everyone is to examine himself. I'm not here to examine you. You're not here to examine me. I'm here to examine myself. And you need to do that as well. Number one, examine whether or not you're in the faith. 
If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, this really is not for you. This isn't going to earn any merit before God. Oh, I, I, I took of the, the, the bread and the cup at Grace Baptist Church. Or if you're from a Catholic background, I participated in the Mass. No, that doesn't cut it. It's a good thing, but that doesn't cut it. You need Christ. And so if you're unwilling to trust in Him as your Savior, I would ask you to just pass the plates as they come. If you trust Christ as your Savior today, join us. Remember Jesus. And if you're living in sin, you need to check that out. And you need to deal with that. Because some who didn't deal with their sin partook. And the Bible said, for that reason, many were weak and sickly among them. And some had even died. It's a pretty serious thing. So we examine ourselves. And then we partake. And we do this to remember the Lord. The one who gave his body and shed his blood that we might be forgiven and have life. Gentlemen, would you come?